I'm with Dr. Michael Skinner, who we've spent some time uh, in, in 2019 speaking about your amazing research on how exposure of rats to glyphosate caused damage in the great-grandchildren. Correct. And you just published something new in the journal Epigenetics, uh, where you discovered the mechanism how exposure to the pregnant rat was passed down to the next generation, to the next generation, and to the next generation. And what it is is not only a sobering demand on us living an organic and glyphosate-free lifestyle, but you actually have shed an understanding of a whole new way that disease is created, not from our genome, but from our epigenetics. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna dive into the dangers of Roundup like we haven't before, but also a new understanding of disease and how it relates to genes. And I'm gonna see if I'm still breaking out, breaking up like a, uh, there we come back. Okay, so first of all, let's review what you did. You were at University of Washington, or Washington, Washington State? Washington State University. Washington State University, sorry. Wrong, wrong place. And so if you could tell us what you did at your lab uh, to make the discovery first about the intergenerational effects, and then we'll get into the mechanisms and the nitty gritty. Sure. So um, a few years ago, we published this glyphosate paper and uh, for about 20 years ago, let me step back, we'd identified the concept that there was this non-genetic form of inheritance. In other words, most inheritance is thought to only be genetics and go through your DNA sequence to your next generation. And this requires the sperm and the egg to come together. The, that DNA then is sort of has sort of mutations and things in it, and that causes this genetic sort of inheritance. So about 20 years ago, we identified the fact that using another environmental chemical called vinclozolin, which is the most commonly used fungicide in the world in agriculture, we exposed some uh, outbred rat models to these vinclozolin. Uh, we intentionally exposed a gestating female, a pregnant female, at a very specific time of sex determination for the fetus, whether they were gonna get ovaries or testis. And then basically found that the offspring had phenotypes, but then when he bred those out two or two more generations to the great grand offspring, that essentially the disease that we saw in the first generation kept being passed generations, even though the only exposure was the F0 generation. So we termed that epigenetic transgenerational inheritance and it wasn't mediated through genetics, so we call, and we knew it was actually epigenetics because what the environmental chemical did is it changed the epigenetic makeup of the sperm or the egg, and that actually that make that epigenetic change is what was being inherited. It's not a sequence thing; it's more small molecules and, and factors around the DNA that regulates how it works, like chemical modifications and so forth, those become permanently sort of uh, put in place in the germline and it keeps going inherited for multiple generations. 
in a plant species, for example, had been shown that that can be inherited a hundred generations. That there was a heat exposure changing a flowering phenotype and a hundred generations, the same flowering phenotype, and it was an epigenetic shift that was doing it. In Drosophila fruit flies, it can go a thousand generations. And so it was a wing structure change and it goes a thousand generations in this non-genetic inheritance mechanism. Let me, let me just jump in here and make it clear that the genome did not change. The, genome the, the sequence of the gene did not change. It was what was being expressed as a result of the, of the molecules hanging around. Right, the chemical modifications of DNA, like DNA methylation, the chemicals, right, right. Or the protein modifications, chemical modifications of the proteins, the DNAs are wrapped around called histones, uh, those types of things, or the really small RNAs that hang around that actually help things work. So these epigenetic components is what was changing and it was becoming permanently programmed and that's what you were inheriting going forward. Now we realize that a significant, if not equally important form of inheritance of phenotypes and traits and so forth comes from the epigenome and the environmentally induced epigenome versus the genetic sequence that we inherit. Now, from a from a practical standpoint, before we get into the, the glyphosate research, which by the way, from what I understand, when they evaluated the social media coverage of your discovery from 2019, Within a week, it had 115 million mentions, propelling it to one of the top five of all time of the scientific papers in terms of uh, social media devouring. Right. So you were you were known. It was the shot heard around the world, and I'm sure Monsanto and the other months, the glyphosate makers, were not happy about that. Um, so we're coming back now to. The concept that if something happens to your great grandmother, if they go through a trauma, or if they have a famine, or if they have something in their life, it may be affecting you. Correct. And you don't have to believe in consciousness as a field, or even if you do, you don't have to believe in um, some kind of energetic, psychic uh, inheritance. It could be the way histones are wrapped around your DNA that happened because your grandmother was in a trauma. Is this, is this am I getting this right? Correct. Yeah, the environmental exposures, whether it be trauma, nutrition, environmental chemicals, and so forth, of an individual can change your uh, physiology early in life, so it affects your disease later in life. But it, what it does do is it changes your your genetics of your sperm and egg, your germline. And that then becomes permanently programmed, such that then when there's a reproduction and you have a fertilization event, that epigenetics gets passed to the next generation. As that individual grows up and reproduces to the next generation, the same epigenetics gets passed. And so this keeps going and it's called epigenetic inheritance. And you're right, it has nothing to do with DNA sequence. It's not mutations in the DNA or anything else. It basically, it's, it's epigenetic inheritance. The, the unique thing about that scientifically is the environment can't really change the DNA sequence. The vast majority of things are not mutagenic. They can't change the sequence. 
but they have very significant impacts on the epigenome. So the way the organism responds to environmental stressors, shifting the epigenome is they will get phenotypic shifts that actually can cause diseases or in some cases allow an adaptation to allow them to survive better so that then evolutionarily those are actually selected through natural, select or natural selection and Darwinian evolution. So essentially this impacts all of biology, just not, you know, um, little things like our disease and so forth. It's everything. And so and it, I, I have to say that it's one of the areas, it's like I've often said that biology is not rocket science, it's far more complicated. And if you look at how they evaluate genetic engineering, which I've looked at for 25 years, they it takes them 20 years to look at low dose endocrine disruptor effects after that's been established, but they still avoid looking at these epigenetic effects. Finally, within the last few weeks, we discover uh, a, an article where epigenetic impacts from CRISPR cuts and, and additions was found 10 generations out. That means that if you genetically engineer something, you may make a change that no current research right now will have, will be able to find, but it gets passed on generation after generation, which means it could theoretically take over the niche and with a with an epigenetic change that can cause disease susceptibility to the plant or those who eat it, etc. Correct. Now, to bring this back to your sort of focus here in glyphosate, for the field of toxicology, okay. What toxicology is geared around and looks at is what's the effect of a compound or an exposure on the individual exposed. That's called toxicology. Direct exposure toxicology is the only way we do toxicology today. Every single government agency only looks at direct exposure toxicology. What we, what we found with glyphosate is if you do the direct exposure, we don't really see significant effects in our, in our models. It looks like glyphosate is exceedingly safe. And so this is, the, this is the industry coming out and saying this is a really safe compound, which it is for direct exposure. What we well, that's for, well, you inject it into a pregnant rat and that particular rat didn't have any untoward well, experiences. Correct. correct. And so essentially, or males being exposed to their diet or whatever. And so essentially, but if you take that individual and it gets bred to the next generation or maybe another generation, essentially the disease rates go significantly higher so it's 90% of the animals are developing disease. This is called, this is what we're calling this, generational toxicology. It's not necessarily the direct exposure that's the problem, it's your effects on your great grandchildren we need to worry about. And so do we have a responsibility for our grand grandchildren's health? I think most people would say yes. And so we need to actually expand our view of what toxicology is beyond this simple direct exposure effects to a gen X and the next generation. So this Before we get oh, go ahead. So essentially Before yeah. <laughs> I'm going to jump over work, The way this works is it's through these epigenetic inheritance mechanisms. And so and so it's not like Monsanto knew about this because this is very new science. Essentially this is new stuff, but it may, we should step back and try to reevaluate the way we do things and whether certain things. And there's turns out there's a number of environmental chemicals that are agriculturally based like 
uh, atrazine does the same sort of thing where there's no effects in the first generation it only appears in the second or third generation and then the disease uh, incidence is very high so i want to go into the specifics of what happens in the um cells that allow this to occur. But first, let's catch everyone up. You mentioned 90% of the great-grandchildren of the rats that were injected, which was greater than the grandchildren, which was greater than the children. So there was a multiplication of the impact generation to generation. Just can you mention those diseases that you found of, uh, in the great-grandchildren of the exposed rats? Sure, we see uh, kidney disease in both males and females prostate disease uh, in the males, testis disease in the males. We see ovarian disease in the females. We also see some, oftentimes some behavioral effects. And one of the bigger is by the time the third generation comes around, we, usually we see increases in obesity, uh, uh, susceptibility for obesity. So two animals that have this, basically one animal on the same diet, same exercise and so forth, this one will develop obesity and the other one doesn't. So this one has a susceptibility. It's not inducing the disease, it's a susceptibility based on their environment. And so we, you know, we see a number of different things. When I say 90%, they'll have one or more of these diseases in that third generation. All right, now tell us the magic sauce. How did it go from grandmother, great-grandmother, to the great-grandchildren? So the direct exposure of the, like the, the gestating female, okay? Essentially, the female uh, is directly exposed. That's the F0 generation, okay? So all toxicology associated with that deals with direct exposure. Your organ systems are responding to whatever compound you're looking at, okay? And so that's causing then signal transduction things and th things in the cell to actually alter. And then that potentially can promote a disease in a toxicology, okay? That's direct exposure toxicology. The fetus, the F1 generation, at all, the only diseases you're going to see in that when it's born is direct exposure toxicology of the fetus. So the offspring, the F1 generation, generally have much lower disease because again, it's a direct exposure on the fetus. There's no germline mediated event, okay? It's the F1 generation that has this now programmed into the germline, the sperm or the egg, that then it's then that gen the next generation, the grand offspring or great grand offspring where, now think about this, it's a little complex. The sperm and the egg are coming together and one of them or both of them have an altered epigenetics, okay? That sits over the top of the DNA to regulate what genes are on and off. So when you have a fertilization event through the germline, the stem cells that are generated from that early embryo developing, the, what we call a stem cell, now has a different epigenetics and a different sort of gene expression profile. That stem cell generates every single cell type in your body, your brain, your heart, your lungs, your liver, all the different cell types are coming from that embryonic stem cell. Every single cell type in the body now has a shifted epigenetics and transcriptome. Some tissues like the kidney, the prostate, the ovary, or the testis, those are sensitive fairly sensitive to those shifts, and so we have a higher incidence of disease. 
other tissues like the like the heart or liver and and so forth does, doesn't really develop diseases that we've seen so some tissues are resistant and some tissues are more sensitive and so essentially because of that germline transmission all the cells in the body now have this shift and you have a higher incidence when that individual reproduces to the next the great grand offspring the same thing's happening again and it keeps going basically and so essentially a germline mediated event a sperm or egg mediated event has a very bit different mechanism to induce disease than the direct exposure f0 or f1 generation okay and so that's why glyphosate is very safe for direct exposure it doesn't really promote a lot of diseases in our animal models there are some things that people have sort of identified in humans and other animal models that if it's high enough, it actually can induce things. But for the most part, it's, it's one of the more safe compounds that we've actually generated. But it has a very ability to change that epigenetics, the germline, so that the grand offspring and great grand offspring have higher disease rates. That's a different mechanism. Okay, so that's how, and then the thing is, it's permanent. So then, as we saw with the plants going out a hundred generations, the fruit flies for a thousand generations, it just keeps going. Okay, and so essentially, this this is why we need to start thinking about this generational toxicology, because this is probably where the bigger impacts of these exposures really are, not so much on the people today. Now, back in the 50s when we used DDT, those had big effects because they were used so much and the, and so we did have direct effects and that's what the whole field of toxicology was developed in the 60s from those types of exposures ddt and other things and so that's why they only focused on direct exposure before now with this new information new science we need to sort of start thinking about this uh, generational sort of thing and i my area in collecting data and sharing it and interviewing scientists I've come across different sets of data than you and your studies in terms of the F0 for glyphosate. Um, I could probably spend 15 minutes just recounting various F0 impacts, whether it's damaging the actin in the cell, causing collapse of the mitochondria, the uh, gap junctions, the tight junctions, the genotoxicity, the antibiotic nature, the, the binding with um, uh, minerals making them unavailable, um, the et cetera, et cetera. So I, even though you dismiss it as relatively little compared to some acutely toxic compounds, I would consider it to be significant. And yet where we can meet is if you think that's bad, you just wait <laughs> because then it's going to change. It's like, it's, I found it fascinating, and you were very clear in the description how the embryonic stem cells become everything. And if they're messed up, the scientific def scientific word messed up, in a certain way, skewed in a certain way, they'll pass that on. They'll whisper that same mess up to everything that they become, sure. including the germline, which gets passed on to the next offspring which gets passed on to the next offspring. Now, when I ran the last interview with you, doctor, I was, I got a comment from a friend of mine, Dr. Michelle Perro, a pediatrician. And she said she really enjoyed the interview, but disagreed with you on one thing. So I'm just gonna lay that out there. No, that's fine. I, I basically said, I asked you the question, so what can we do to reverse the trend of an epigenetic 
issue that we've inherited and you said there's nothing <coughs> that in her awareness there are things that we can do and that the that medicine is getting to a point where if we could see how the environment can cause a change in one direction we can see how to create a new environment to undo that change so in that case she was not taking it as a sentence for all future generations and that some smart flute fruit fly if they just knew the right medicine would have stopped it somewhere in the thousand generations yeah. well uh, for example i don't disagree with her mm -hmm. but i think we're 50 to 100 years off from having the technology to make those decisions and this is why there are she's absolutely right there are some therapeutics they can be used it's, they're right now used in stage three cancer patients for a number of cancers they take this therapeutic and they can extend their life for two or three months okay so it's not doesn't make them survive but it extends their life then they die after three months you might ask why they die it wasn't because of the cancer or something the therapeutic that they were using the epigenetic changes that were so severe that were going on eventually killed the patient okay so yes it extends it but it has its costs we today can't target therapeutics at a specific site in the genome or, or or a certain cell type and things like that and so i think i don't disagree that eventually we will be, be able to potentially get there but we're quite a bit off from that now there's another thing where there's a compound called folate, which is a vitamin, basically. Folate is a methyl donor for the DNA methylation that we measure that's changing, okay? So you'd think that basically there's too little folate and you just gave enough folate that you might actually shift the epigenetics, which can occur, you can actually measure that. Unfortunately, you get too high in the folate, guess what, it becomes toxic, causes the epigenetic changes to actually cause more disease than what you were trying to treat. And so essentially, if you take folate above maybe 200% the daily dose recommended, it becomes toxic. And so we just don't know enough science around these manipulations of the epigenome yet. We're just in the early days for us to take any kind of measures like that. I, w I think we will get there in 50 or 100 years, but it's down the line. So we have to It's also that. possible that the ancient wisdom of health had an understanding of the impacts of food they talk about food as intelligence or as knowledge sure, and, sure, sure. and it gets that information gets transferred sure, and sure. i remember hearing about ayurveda with this concept and then reading about the rnas of food and herbs and how that can modulate gene expression right. and it, it fit hand in glove with the description of the ancient understanding of food. Now, what's interesting here is we constantly upgrade. Well, in this case, with food, it's not constant. It's with these big leaps. It was vitamins and vitamins and minerals and then phytochemicals. And now we realize that the food that we eat has RNA and the RNA may help reprogram or program cell um, gene expression. It might have um, other ways, as you mentioned, the methyl groups and also the histone, which was part of your research. So it becomes much richer mm -hmm. when you look at the quality of the food 
as well as the quality of the toxins. So it can cut both ways, that maybe there's qualities of the food in terms of ability to inform our epigenetics to, to chill and release the impact from the toxins. Well, it's not necessarily, I mean, you're absolutely right. You understand that RNAs, but all these non-coding RNAs and these small RNAs, that's an epigenetic component. Right. The epigenetics, it, one of the major components of epigenetics is those small non-coding RNAs. And that's what you can actually ingest from food and have it maintain intact. It's very stable. And that's what's actually causing the effects. The big RNAs you think about from a protein or something, those get degraded very quickly. It's the small RNAs, which are epigenetic in function. They have nothing to do with the DNA sequence. And they basically m regulate things completely independent. So that essentially it's the epigenetics from the food. In addition, nowadays there actually is a, pretty, a, a re, re, uh, resurgence in Chinese medicine and so forth, Asian sort of medicine, that there's a lot of these medical approaches taken out of Chinese medicine, classic sort of traditional Chinese medicine, which have the same type of thing you think about in terms of food. They're, they're herbs and so forth, and they're actually, and they now realize that epigenetic sort of modifications and so forth are part of those mechanisms that they're looking at. So I agree totally. In the future, we probably need to be a little bit more open-minded to more classic and traditional approaches uh, and bringing that into modern medicine sort of approaches to bring, have a better sort of eventually medical approach. Now, having talked about the epigenetic impact of, of small pieces of RNA, um, you could probably understand why I'm a bit upset about the genetically engineered apple and potato engineered with double-stranded RNA to silence the gene that produces browning because now you have a epigenetic uh, stable molecule in the food that we eat that's known to reprogram genetic expression right. and doesn't necessarily limit itself to the apple or the potato, but we eat the apple or potato. or the RNA interference sprays that have been approved to be pesticides where you can spray it and imagine the poor person who gets sprayed because he's the actual sprayer and he gets full of that spray and it might have epigenetic effects on his own genome. But now what you're saying is, and his or her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So um, you can genetically engineer an organism, okay? to make it different like the CRISPR apple, okay? The basic genome and the basic RNA, that, you know, message RNA that's actually generated, okay? If you eat that apple, it's degraded in your stomach and doesn't go any farther, okay? Essentially, normal sort of diet has lots amount of DNA. We ingest lots of RNA and lots of DNA. And we just, whether it's from a cow, whether it's from an apple, whatever it is, and we did digest it. So that is not, should not be seen as a foreign hazardous sort of thing, okay? Now, if the genetic engineering generates a product that is toxic, then we potentially are ingesting that toxic. Now, the CRISPR apple is much more of a genetically engineered plant where it's in the basic DNA sequence and there's different sort of RNA generated that actually is causing sort of the taste and or whatever we're getting out of it. So that's really doesn't have the capacity to necessarily be harmful. It, it sounds very science fiction like, 
But in terms of that, you have to understand that when we ingest things, we are going to digest classic DNA and classic RNA. Now, if they make a small uh, non-coding RNA, most things are species specific in terms of their function. And so just because it's in an apple doesn't really it's going to have a function in the, in, the, in the human. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't test its toxicity. And that's something that probably has not been done extensively. And so we need to test the toxicity of some of these things that are generated. Uh, if we actually test them and there's not major effects, then it's probably not an issue. Okay. Well, if we had more time to dive into this, I would point out some research that, that comes from a different angle. I did some research on RNA interference with, uh, I interviewed Jonathan Landsman, who used to work at the USDA, who talks about how RNA from one species can impact another. And Dr. Jack Heineman from New Zealand, who points out that the regulatory agencies and the biotech industry claim that because RNA is break, gets broken down during digestion, we don't have to worry about it. And yet they use it for regulating DNA expression mm -hmm. in such a way that it has to survive to some degree in order for it to even do that. So, and there was also some very specific research that shows that it is in fact stable and that there, some of the research that was that showed that it was stable was later attacked by Monsanto. And I interviewed the, the woman and she was up, outraged because it was clear that what Monsanto was doing with double-stranded RNA um, was dangerous based on her research, and they were trying to discredit her research because it showed that they were, play they were playing with regulatory fire. Um, so in addition, like when honeybees were fed double-stranded RNA for a meal, they had over 1,400 genes that became dysregulated over a few weeks, but it came from a jellyfish and it was, it was cross-species. Anyway, as I say, I'm, I know enough, I have, I have steep walls <laughs> where at a certain point I like, oh, I don't, I can't talk to you about histone, you know, histone differentiation and all that because that's not where I have the background. But I'll just say that there's, my concern is that what we learn here in talking to you about the multi-generational effects, about the epigenetic effects, mm -hmm. the, R, the small pieces of RNA, et cetera, and we compare that to the regulatory reviews, whether it's toxicology in the F0 or GMOs, which has you know even less than a standard toxicological review, it shows that we're we're playing with fire here. Well, I would say that you're absolutely right. There's not a lot of science done in these toxicology analysis, and it's not in depth enough to actually you know make some of the conclusions that that there, it's not present or something and it needs to be investigated. But there's lots of normal examples of non-coding RNAs or just RNA in general, which are not sort of the toxicity that you're suggesting. And so mm -hmm. you need to be cautious of not overreacting oh, yeah. uh, with these types of things. So if we say, for example, uh, engineered, uh, you have to understand that we, when we engineer plants, we've been doing that for thousands of years, okay? When they actually look out over a cornfield and they have one plant that actually is a little higher, bigger, and has higher production, and you go out and pull that out of the ground and you propagate that in the next farm, that's a form of genetic engineering. 
okay? We didn't go in and actually do something experimentally, but we've selected those types of things for literally a thousand years, okay? And so it, to a degree, some of these are some natural products that are just shifted, and so therefore you get the traits you're interested in going forward. And I have no problem with natural selection and, and wide crossbreeding. I have no problem with that. Uh, I am aware that the process of genetic engineering done in laboratories introduces specific risks that are different than those that are in, in And I wouldn't disagree, and they need to be tested. It doesn't mean right. we need to terminate them. We need to be tested as to if there is health effects down the line. I agree. You no, know, we we've we've stepped out of the <laughs> the box that I I mean I, I I could I've been doing the evaluations of these things for 25 years and traveling 45 countries and interviewing you know some of the regulators and the scientists and whatnot and compiling them in books and I love talking about this stuff but I actually would prefer in terms of talking with you learning from you in areas that I don't know sure, sure, and that. This is an area where you are one of the world's experts. Okay. And I would like to just share before we finish, I would like for those of us who are really into the science, if you could explain very specifically how the epigenetics works in the sperm cells that you tested, so the histone and the methyl groups, and then finally, how we need to rethink in terms of genes as expressions of diseases. We had a little bit of that, but let's just let's just burn that that myth completely and introduce a new understanding. But let's start with the simple mechanics that most people never get to. Sure, sure, okay. All right. So epigenetics is defined as molecular factors and processes that are around the DNA sequence that can regulate what genes are on and off, genome activity, completely independent of the DNA sequence. The sequence has no impact on epigenetic regulation. They doesn't care, okay? If there was a sequence dependent, if there was DNA sequence dependent, the process would be genetics. Okay, so by having it completely independent, then essentially it has nothing to do with genetics. It's just, now, the, the, the main types of epigenetics is there's a chemical modification of DNA in it. A methyl group, a small uh, uh, carbon group with a couple hydrogens gets attached to a, the DNA, all right? And that attachment can actually change the structure of the DNA slightly, but it can also in, interfere with proteins and things binding to the DNA, so it completely changes things, okay? So DNA methylation is what we study extensively. And so that's it. That was the first epigenetic component identified. The second one was called histones. There's a core of eight histones that get together and actually form this st spherical structure. And the DNA gets wrapped around it, just like a bead, uh, a string wrapped around a bead. Okay. And it, it, it takes a couple hundred nucleotides to get it wrapped around it. And so essentially, DNA is not like this naked strand of DNA. Its DNA is wrapped around these histones. So you got this bead and then this bead and this bead. And so it's beads on a string. And then those get twisted and the whole thing comes together and it forms this double helix. And you get these basically, everything comes together with, these hist with the histones supporting this DNA structure. Okay. So turns out that the proteins make up these histones. If you chemically modify these histones, guess what? 
You can actually turn genes on and off based on the histone modification. Doesn't care what the sequence is, so that's epigenetics. So the first one is DNA methylation. The second was histone modifications, okay? The third one identified was the chromatin structure. If you have, a, let's say the DNA is going along and all of a sudden you have a loop that goes around, this thing on this piece of DNA can interact with this DNA and it turns out if there's a gene sitting there, it can turn the gene on or off, okay? And if you break down that loop, you can actually have an effect as well. So the structure of the DNA, called chromatin structure, has a significant impact on and genes going on and off, and that's the third sort of epigenetic component identified. The fourth one that we identified was these non-coding RNAs. Not the, not the message RNAs that are making proteins. It's these really small, the smallest ones are, let's say, 15 to 20 base pairs. They're really small, short. Bigger ones are maybe a hundred, and the long non-coronary RNAs really are a few hundred, okay? So these small ones is really where they, again, they don't make proteins, but they bind to proteins, or they bind to DNA, or they bind, they have structures associated with them that facilitate protein-protein interactions, lots of things going on. And so they can actually go in and directly turn genes on and off, independent of sequence, because they're interacting with proteins and things in the DNA. So that's, that was the fourth one identified. And those are probably just a tip of iceberg. I think we're gonna see lots of new epigenetic components that we don't even know about today because the field's that young that I think we're gonna see a whole plethora of new epigenetic components, okay? So these different epigenetic components get together, they interact with each other, to actually then turn genes on and off have completely independent of DNA sequence, okay? You have to have a gene there, you have to have a promoter there, and basically the epigenetics is what basically turns them on. So in your neuron, you can have this set of genes turned on. In your liver cell, you'd have this set of genes turned on. And the reason they're turned on in this cell and this cell is because the epigenetics in those two cell types is different, and so they regulate different genes. You have 200 cell types in your body. Every single cell type in your body has completely the same DNA sequence. So why is it you have 200 cell types in your body? If the sequence is exactly the same, I'm sorry, the genetic sequence can't drive 200 different cell types. It just doesn't do that. But the epigenetics in every single cell type is completely different and unique to that cell type to give it that cell specificity. So what generates the genome, the expression pattern in the neuron versus the liver is not the DNA sequence as much as it is the epigenetics in those two cell types. So the way to think about it is, I'm not gonna say one's more important than the other, but basically the DNA sequence is just as important as the epigenetics in terms of regulating biology, okay? We just never paid attention to the epigenetics before. For the past 120 years, all we've thought about is genetics and the DNA sequence. All of our, most of our science gears towards looking at ge genetic mutations. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like you got this small piece of a really big story here and you're not paying, to, pay, paying attention to the rest of it, okay? So this is what, we have a paradigm shift in science occurring right now. And it's been occurring for the past 10, 20 years. It'll probably take another 20 years to get a complete shift in the paradigm but that where we're going is equal, having equal contributions of epigenetics and genetics in terms of our thinking about 
evolutionary biology or diseased etiology, or just basically how things work. Okay, so that's basically sort of a quick discussion of the field of epigenetics. Okay. Okay. And so we have the genome and we have the epigenome. Now I know that when a gene creates a protein, well, it creates first the uh, RNA, and then the M RNA, mRNA, right? The RNA can get alternately spliced Correct. and form different sequences, which can then produce different proteins. Correct. And what in the cell determines that alternate splicing? Is that also the epigenetics or is that a third field? No, it's basically epigenetics that's determining whether the splicing occurs at this point or this point. And so therefore, it's epigenetics and genetics are completely integrated. You can't really separate the two. The way the genetics works is by having epigenetics have many of these functions, turning things on and off and so forth. And without the DNA sequence, the epigenetics is somewhat pointless. And so they really are sort of this integrated thing. So it's not like one's more important than the other. They, they, they're they a unit and you really can't separate them. Now we need to start thinking about these epigenetic things that we haven't really thought about before, like epigenetic inheritance we talked about. That's a completely new concept. When we first identified the phenomena, for 10 years I fought this because this is heresy. This is genetic <laughs> heresy. Essentially to say that there's a form of inheritance, not to genetics. It took about 10 years and finally people, other people started doing the experiments and realizing, oh, this looks like it's actually working. And now hundreds of labs in like probably almost a hundred different species have done the same thing. Okay, and basically identified epigenetic inheritance is, is basically a real thing. But it took that long. And so I think paradigm shifts there's a fellow, Kuhn, in basically the 1970s, he came up with the theory that essentially a paradigm shift in science takes at least a generation of scientists. Because the current scientists are so ingrained in that dogma, they're not going to change. And the new scientists coming up, they realize, oh, this is a better way to think about it. They have no restrictions. They have no invested interest. And so they'll step in, essentially, and they create the new science moving forward. So it's the same thing with epigenetics. We've just sort of in the 90s was it's really pushed forward. In the 2000s, we got a little bit farther. So we we need another 20 years and we'll probably be there where, where it needs to be sort of looked at. Now, one thing that you found in your study that was just published in the, in the journal Epigenetics was that when you looked at the rats who were the great-grandchildren of the injected female rats, they had what was passed down were certain um, histones or methyl groups on particular genes associated with the particular diseases suffered by the rats in the prostate. You had mentioned obesity, you had mentioned the ovaries and the testes, uh, kidneys, I believe. And so this shows that they specific, you can look at and evaluate, because right now it says, okay, I have 23andMe and I've done the medical thing, or I have Ancestry.com and I've done the medical thing, so now I know what I'm susceptible to. But there may be, in according to your research, a future at looking at our epigenome to see where these methyl groups are and if they're sitting on top of specific genes that are related to certain diseases. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So what we've been talking about, put it in simple terms, um, what your great-grandmother got exposed to, or grandfather, 
is going to cause a disease in you. And you may never see that exposure, that environmental sort of factor, but you still get a disease. And then you're going to pass it on to your grandkids. So I'm sorry, this is pretty doom and gloom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So in other words, you know, you can't control anything your grandparents did, and you can't, it's difficult to actually control what your grandkids are going to do. And so essentially, this is pretty doom and gloom. So, so I've been thinking about this for decades. And so I say, okay, how do we go to the next step? How do we take this basic information and take it to the next step? Okay. No. So what the, the initial steps were, we started looking at, we have, we, we've looked at the effects of 16 or so different environmental toxicants and that we promoted models with all three, all of them to promote, they all promote transgenerational inheritance. But the epigenetic changes for each exposure turns out to be unique to that exposure. In other words, there, there's hardly any overlap, okay? And so for, that gave us the idea that, oh, so you got kidney disease coming up with all of them. And so why is it coming up? So we're starting to get a better understanding of basically how disease develops. But what we started doing is getting biomarkers for exposure. So the next thing we end up, ended up doing is started, started getting biomarkers for the given diseases. So the recent study is we used glyphosate model that we generated in 19, uh, 2019. And we actually take those animals out. We analyze all the diseases they have. And then we actually isolate all of the animals with kidney disease, just kidney disease, nothing else, just kidney disease. We take those and a sperm analysis from the father that's causing the kidney disease, and we basically get a biomarker for just kidney disease, epigenetic changes that are just kidney disease in the sperm. Okay, we do the same thing for obesity. We do the same thing for ovarian disease. I mean, and and disease, so forth. And so we have these disease-specific biomarkers, mm -hmm. and we did this with I think six or eight different environmental exposures to actually show that indeed we have these epigenetic disease biomarkers okay some now these overlap a little bit more than the exposures did so we're now using that so with glyphosate we have epigenetic marker biomarkers for each of the diseases that the glyphosate was inducing transgenerationally three generations later okay now think about this if you could actually use a biomarker epigenetic biomarker determine what your great-grandparents were exposed to and by knowing that exists what diseases you potentially are going to pass to your grandkids we can actually use that biomarker to say okay early in life for your grandchild child or your child you basically say if you do the epigenetic test here's the biomarker that's present we know you have a such and such percentage chance of developing breast cancer or you know basically kidney disease or whatever and so because of that, now you can step in before the disease develops in the individual and actually come up with some treatment, either a lifestyle change, dietary or whatever, or a therapeutic to actually treat the individual before they have the disease to delay or prevent the onset of that disease later in life. Okay. Now, we weren't the first one to show the, the feasibility of this. The first observations were done in the cancer field for breast cancer. Okay, so that breast cancers had a number of chemotherapies developed to actually treat breast cancer after it develops. Okay, one of the treatments that came about was called tamoxifen. Okay, tamoxifen is a chemotherapy, 
it doesn't really work well to treat disease, the breast cancer, after it develops. But what they found was, if you actually were in your 30s, most breast cancer occurs, we say, between 50 and 60, you know, maybe up to 70 years. And so if you went into your 30s and you took tamoxifen for two or three years as sort of a preventative therapeutic, it would delay the onset of the breast cancer by 10 or 20 years and sometimes inhibit, inhibit it from happening in the first place, okay? That's called a preventative therapeutic. The reason we don't have more therapeutics like that is we do not have any way to test whether you're susceptible to get the disease later in life. Epigenetic diagnostics will give us that capacity, okay? So this is what this particular study did. It said that with the glyphosate induction of this transgenerational, we have these biomarker-specific disease to show the proof of principle we could have those. And then basically now in the future, we, it won't be that useful in a rat model, but in a, rat, in a human model, we could actually develop those types of things like the tamoxifen treatment for breast cancer. So what epigenetics is going to do and genetics actually thought that it would, in 2000, when they sequenced the genome, they thought that they would get these sort of things from the genetic mutations, but it just didn't, wasn't realized because the mutations turned out to be extremely low frequency events. Epigenetics is a very high frequency sort of issue, and so that doesn't have that problem. And our models are telling us that we can actually use those diagnostics to treat them. So we may not be able to fix the problems that glyphosate has induced but we may be able to treat them in our subsequent generations as a preventative treatments to actually treat the diseases. So we won't be able to get rid of it, but we can treat the diseases to improve our health accordingly. So now it's not quite as doom and gloom. In other words, we, because of the technology, we might be able to do something about it in the future and take it basically ushering in this preventative medicine approach and preventative therapeutics that we really couldn't do efficiently until now. So I think that, so the, the current glyphosate paper is really giving that first sort of proof of principle that indeed those types of epigenetic sort of diagnostics exist and now going to the human. Now we've recently published this last week that we could do this in autism in humans. We could take a father yeah. sperm basically and actually assess their epigenetics and potentially tell whether they have a susceptibility to have an autistic child. The nice thing about that is if you can catch autism early in life before the age of one and two and do some treatments, then you could actually decrease the severity of the autism dramatically. And so we might be able to, cl the clinical management of the disease might be a preventative sort of approach to actually do that and it is from the epigenetic analysis of the father's sperm. And so I think in the human, we now have some indications too that this is going to work or at least the proof of principle. Now we need to do larger clinical trials and sort, of forth and sort of move forward. But that's why we're spending a lot of time now, because now that we identified the phenomena, the next step was, well, what can we do about this phenomena? Because it's basically now ingrained in our population and, our, and the increase in disease we've seen over the past few decades is because of all these environmental factors. Sure, we should try to clean it up. Sure, we should try not to use them and so forth. But what do we do about the people that were exposed? And so this sort of starts to address that. I think we talked last time about we're a, a generation whose parents or grandparents were exposed to DDT, and that might explain uh, obesity or right. something like that coming right. coming out now because of the epigenetic markers. Right. So. 
even though I'm going to be even more optimistic than you and say that we're going to be able to do a kind of a, a, a treatment that may not even be uh, pharmaceutical, but more holistic, where we can use the intelligence of the body sure, to sure. restructure the the uh, environment around and entwined in the DNA, so we could shed this stuff. But I also find it fascinating that, like, I know people will say, "Well, I've got the particular genome or the the gene for for breast cancer. I've got the gene for Alzheimer's," and you know, pretty soon they're going to say, "Yeah, but do you have the epigenome?" sitting on top of that. So is it actually where there's the, you look at the particular location of the gene and you look at the at the vicinity around the gene to see if the methyl group and the histone and the chromatin and all that, right there at the place of the, at the suspect gene and that's where you do your, your, your looking? Um, we do, when we do a, a epigenome map, first of all, we do genome-wide analysis. And so we identified, you know, in, I think in the glyphosate diseases, there were three or 400 epigenetic sort of sites that we identified. So my opinion is it'll never be one site. It'll never be even a few sites. It's all two or 300 or a thousand sites. So we have to stop thinking about the fact that one thing can do something. And so that's, a, that's called a reductionist view in science. And that reductionist view is not getting us anywhere. Thank you. We really need to step back and look at this as a system. And so when we do an epigenome map, we do the whole genome. And the way you're going to think about this is here's the diagnostic. And if you're going to do some sort of therapeutic treatment, it has to affect the entire epigenome. So it fixes this. With genetics, it was very difficult to do large numbers. And you have to understand if they get a genetic mutation for Alzheimer's or whatever, it's in one in a hundred, hundred people have the disease. It's in one individual. It's that, that low. It's usually less than 1% of, of any kind of disease biomarker like that or mutation is within the population. It's a very low frequency event. Yet we can take, in the case we just did, we took 15 individuals that, that uh, had autistic children and we identified 800 of them that were present in every single individual. So it's a much higher frequency event. Okay, So we have to start doing more global you know, uh, genome-wide stuff and stop doing this reductionist approach and we'll actually get someplace, I think. And so so I'm not sure if that answers your question, but. Oh no, it, it's even better. I mean, to me, I've been railing against reductionist thinking for a long time. In fact, I'm excited. Someday I'd like to visit you when the pandemic is over or at least get on another Zoom call. And based on your understanding of the shortcomings of of F0 toxicology and the impact, the potential impacts of manipulating DNA, which could change RNA and could change regulatory um, impacts of RNA on the same and few other species. What I'd love to do with you is to map out what a more ideal assessment for uh, GMOs would be, you know, so that it, unless it gets this, 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 and this, you're putting future generations at risk, you're ignoring, I mean, they don't even do geno genomic, they don't do any omics right now. They don't look at anything when they create a genome, a GMO for food. They just say, well, it seems to be creating the pesticide or, and, or resisting the herbicide. So we won't even sequence the protein that we expected to be created. And then they found out later it wasn't at all what they wanted. Anyway, I'm not gonna rail against that. That's just my area. <laughs> 
Thank doctor. I said when we started, I said the oh, last time we talked for 47 minutes, I don't think it's going to be that long. We actually, I just love talking to you. You are, you are so, first of all, as a scientist, you're not only on the cutting edge of what you do, but you're also brilliant at, at explaining it so everyone can understand. So I feel like that people like you and you in particular can speed up the way that the generation takes before the paradigm shifts, because it's not obscure. It's not held off in the far reaches of geekdom. It held it tied down by jargon. You're explaining it in such a way that feels right. And you're also creating, uh, most importantly, practical steps, which can save lives, which always speed up implementation. Sure. So that's, that's one of the, uh, uh, problems with being a professor you sort of basically have it because you're communicating it to people that you know have to start it from scratch and so that's part of the uh, it's a, a, a professional hazard of being a professor basically <laughs> but i appreciate the comment okay thank you so much anything else you want to add no no but i think that that covered it and um, yeah i appreciate the interest in the study all right thank you so much Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.